Welcome to the AZ Wine Guru Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Acoustic Cellars Lodge, a unique B&B experience that you can find on Airbnb, VRBO, or directly on the web at AcousticCellarsLodge.com. Acoustic Cellars Lodge is a spot where you would want to stay when you come up and visit the Verde Valley. Beautiful rooms, private view decks, sits on two acres of woods, just lush green areas deep in a green belt, kind of its own little unique valley, literally less than a mile from Oak Creek in both directions. The hiking is phenomenal. The rooms are a rustic chic feel, super cool. Check it out. They support the AZ Wine Guru podcast and we support them as well. Welcome to the AZ Wine Guru podcast, of which I am not, but I am learning and having a blast meeting a bunch of people that are. So our AZ Wine Guru today is Mr. Matt Reka. Matt, how you doing, buddy? Pretty good. It's yeah. harvest, so, you know, thank what you crazy for, time of year. Yeah, and thank you for taking time with me. I know this is, a, like, insane, right? Yeah, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty crazy this year, but we got a nice little break right now so cool th today's my my easy day i love it well i appreciate you letting me come in this morning nice to catch you doing those punch downs right away for me <laughs> that was special day. to watch you do them <laughs> instead of saying hey leon get <laughs> leon, out there and do, do those punch downs yeah <laughs> inside story on that guys i was able to mentor under matt when i was going through the college enology program at the yavapai college program there and I was, he was gracious enough to let the newbie come in and work at, at this winery that he was at at the time, which was actually Stronghold. And uh, how long were you at Stronghold, Matt? Uh, just shy of three years. Oh, nice. So all those latest really good wines that came out at Stronghold, that's, that's your yeah. touch on there, right? 17, 18, 19 harvest I was there. Beautiful. Yeah, I had a blast working with you and learned a lot. And... Uh, that was a rough harvest, too. Yeah, it was a tough one, it yeah. It was hot. It was so hot. And then the damn bees. Right? Yeah. Swatting off those bees. And That's what you get when you're by the river. And then I ruined my Ray-Bans because you had me spraying the, the stuff on the bins after yep. we were going through and dumping. Oh, and that's, I, I know. I just buy a new pair of Ray-Bans after harvest every yeah, year. Yeah, because they just get torched. I can't get that, whatever that <laughs> film is, I can't yep. get it off of there. Well, anyway, I appreciate you taking some time today. No worries. Um, where are you from? Where are you originally from in your winemaking world? Uh, well, originally way back when Colorado, um, but I got my start making wine in Washington State. Okay. About ten years ago. Nice, nice. And oh, any specific area? Like, there's multiple uh, wine areas up in Washington, right? I, w I worked in Woodenville, so I was I was living outside of Seattle um, in a little suburb of Bellevue, and then. Wandering up into Woodenville and, and got my start working with a guy up there. Uh, but we sourced all of our grapes from Eastern Washington. It, when I started with them, pretty much just the Yakima Valley area. Uh, but while I was with him, we kind of expanded into Walloo Slope and Walla Walla AVAs. And now he's doing all kinds of crazy fun stuff that now that I'm gone. Cool. Yeah, that area I don't know much about. I know that um, 
Willamette. I know that's not Washington, but that's in that same upper area. Yeah, there, yeah, right? that's that's Oregon, yeah. Willamette River Valley. So where you were crazy at, Pinos were, there. were Pinos good where you were at as well, or what was the main varietal that was doing good up there? Uh, well, Washington always had its name from Riesling. Um, Chateau St. Michel, the, at the at least at one point, was the largest winery in the state of Washington, um, and they got they made their name nationally on a Johannesburg Riesling, Beautiful. Um, which is a kind of sweet acidic style. Yeah. Uh, but Washington's really come to be known for its cabs, um, doing some amazing Cabernet Sauvignons out of there. But then also uh, a really big name for Syrahs, um, and it's. It's got such cool individual microclimates in some of its AVAs that each one's kind of starting to pop with, with its own specialties. specialties. Um, and it's, it's just like this perfect growing region. It's it's like Napa Valley, but cheaper. Awesome. So right. they, can, they can grow anything and, and they don't stick themselves into just one or two varietals. That's fabulous. So speaking of things that are growing good in specific areas, now you're down in Arizona. You've been here, what, four years? Three Three years. Three years. And so you've had a chance to get your hands in the vineyards. You're getting yep. different grapes from different locales in the in the state. Yep. Most of your stuff's coming from down south. Is that right? Uh, majority's coming from Wilcox, uh, which is the same for the for the entire state. Seventy percent sure. of the grapes are grown in the Wilcox AVA. Um, but I, I I haven't worked with any Sonoida vineyards. Um, just haven't had that opportunity. But a lot, lot of different Wilcox AVA vineyards. Um, a few different northern Verde Valley vineyards, and then uh, I've actually worked with a couple of vineyards out of the Kingman area as well for a couple of different projects. Oh, nice. Yeah, I remember we got some Kingman fruit in when I was there helping you. Yep. Nice. So, tell me about Cove Mesa Winery. This is a new a new venture, right? You guys yep. are literally brand new. How long? Brand new. We got all the gear just recently in here, and what's happening? Yeah, so uh, I officially started with Cove Mesa I guess you would say I officially started with them as an employee June 1st. Um, but I have been working with the owners the, the six months prior to that, kind of figuring things out and putting together plans and, and what do we want to do? How do we want to do it? How much money is it going to cost to do what we want to do? Right. Um, Always the biggest deal, right? In wine. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You want to make a small fortune in winemaking? Start with a large one. We'll make it small pretty fast. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's been kind of a challenge because we did get a late start, so there's been a lot of just, you know, making phone calls and saying, "Hey, great, I want to give you money now. Ship it. I need the gear. Yes, I need the gear yesterday." Um, which is still, you know, we're still dealing with that. Now we still don't have all of the gear that we purchased just for this startup winery. Um, Did so, you find issues with COVID delaying some of that stuff or everything? Oh, absolutely. Pretty good? Um, COVID's been a huge impact on, uh, on us very specifically, but on, you know, the, the wine industry as a whole and, and the economy as a whole. I mean, you know, everybody's sitting at home, so everybody's ordering everything off of Amazon. So UPS and FedEx are just backed up in shipping. Um, you know, all with the worldwide impacts, you know, a lot of our equipment comes from overseas. Uh, a lot of the stuff we buy comes out of Europe. You know, the, our press, our distemmer, um, some of our tanks, some of our other supplies. And those are, are big are ship items. So big ship stuff. items. Wow. So if the freighters aren't running, right. then... You know, it's sitting on a dock, you know, in Rialto or, or Fuji or something. 
sitting over there and then all of a sudden when it finally ships well it's backed up behind 13 other ships that have to go out and it's not an overnight thing it's you know our we've got a uh, a concrete egg that was supposed to be here today and it's not it's not going to be here for another two weeks wow and it's got, on the water right and you now. have grapes ready to go into it I, I had or to. I had, that, I had to make. I had to do an audible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I had to call an audible on that one. Um, we'll still get the wine into the concrete, and, and you know, very specifically got that that piece of equipment for a certain wine. So, it'll still happen, just not one hundred percent the, the way plan this year. To. Yeah. So this is a really unique spot. Uh, I know, as the, as the listeners, you're not going to be able to see what I'm sitting in, but it's a small, basically a small warehouse that Matt, you designed this. This is way different than what I helped you in over at Stronghold, right? Now, yeah. this little, but everything looks like it's so efficient. Can you just tell me how you set the, what, what was the intention? Because you don't have a huge team here, right? Uh, I, I've got me. Um, <laughs> and occasionally my owners, um, or, the, or the owners for the winery, uh, one of them will come in and help process and clean up. The other one's actually driving our truck to drive down to Wilcox to pick up grapes. Oh, wow. Um, so he's back and forth down there quite often. Um, but other than that, yeah, it's, it, the, the, it's, I'm the only employee right now. So you've got um, a big, a, a nice size destemmer. Yeah. And this does what as well as doing the destemming? You were telling me this. So this one has uh, crusher wheels on it as well. So, oh. you know, it, it's, it's kind of a two-part thing. When you say that you're destemming, most people, when they say they destem their grapes, they mean they're destemming and crushing. Um, but in reality, you can destem and keep your berries whole. Um, it's not something I like. Uh, I, feel, I don't like some of the impacts it has on the wine and, and how it ferments. So when I purchased this piece of equipment, I chose to get it with crusher wheels, which is something that I've always used. Um, so it literally crushes. It literally it crushes. Yeah. So it destems so and they fall the through the crusher wheels nice. and you, you can adjust it. So it smushes them down to nothing and you, you got soup in your fermenter. Um, what I prefer to do is I adjust them so the, the wheels are just slightly closer together than the grape size. So that just cracks them open. So you oh, still get cool. a little bit of a slow leak of the juice nice. coming out, but without it having to you know break the skin on its own. So it's fermenting almost whole, but not really. Right. That's cool. Really good. How'd you get started in wine? What, what made you think to go down this road? <laughs> uh, I had a friend in college that um, went up to visit in Seattle with her. Um, and it, she, she was from the Seattle area. So we went up there to hang out. And I, I was trying to figure out what I was doing with my life. Um, I went to college late. I was in the Marine Corps um, and got accepted to a commissioning program through the Marine Corps. Oh, nice. So they sent me to college Thank to, to go get smart. Thank you. Um, and towards the end, I was graduating and I had a knee injury that they came back and said, well, your knee injury is bad enough that we can't commission you now. Um, you can stay in the Marine Corps and fly a desk and retire. Um, because I, I had attained enough rank at that point that I could retire at that rank if I wanted to. Wow. Um, they said, or you can take an early retirement and go make better money somewhere else. And I said, well, if I can't blow things up anymore, then I'm going to go make good money. <laughs> Let me go blow up some grapes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I was checking out Seattle as an option to move to. Um, I had dinner with her and her family, and 
her dad was a big wine guy and he popped open i can't ever remember the exact vintage but it was a it was like a 1983 or 84 della vineyards maya which is a wine out of the napa valley um, that was actually made by heidi barrett who's a huge huge wine name one of my idols that woman is amazing with what she can do with grapes um and that was my aha wine that was like oh damn it's good stuff um so i get to seattle i i was working in corporate crisis management um people figured i started enough disasters i could probably manage one for them <laughs> and it started to get into wine a little bit more being in in seattle woodenville's right a there connoisseur you mean yeah, just uh, yeah, just drinking more wine as an educated drinker. <laughs> okay. Um, so I started hanging out in in Woodenville, and I became really good friends with this guy named Kevin Carell and his girlfriend. His at the time, his girlfriend Bonnie. Um, he owned a small winery up there, um, set up very similar to this in, in what they call the warehouse district, which is kind of like this location. Only every single one of these would be a different winery. That's weird. Yeah. Nice. Um, so just kind of became friends with them, enjoyed his wines, wandered in one day and the tasting room was slammed. So I kind of jumped in and just helped like wash glasses and asked if I could, you know, come in one day and help him in the back. Cause I wanted to understand how these super sweet little teeny grapes became this awesome nectar of the gods. <laughs> and he gave me all the same warnings that I give everybody that I told you when, when we first started talking about you coming to intern at, at Stronghold. And I said, you know, it's, we don't stand around and drink wine. It's, it's cold, it's wet, it's dirty, it's long days, it's miserable work. I don't know why anybody would want to be a winemaker. And I said, cool, let's do it. Yep. <laughs> I think that was my response, too. I'm in, <laughs> let's go. So, uh, you know, uh, helping out for a couple of days turned into an internship, an internship, or, or an apprenticeship, I guess we kind of called it. Um, an apprenticeship turned into an assistant winemaker position, and I was with him for five years. So Total. you grew into it. You didn't go to a wine program like I had. No. Like, no I, I'm, so you didn't do the wine school up in Washington. Or yeah. Any of that. Nice. So you had hands-on. I'll, I'll yep. teach you wine if you'll stay and deal with all this bullshit work. Right? Exactly. Because that's how it works. Nice. So yep. that's why you have the style you have then when you bring someone in like me. <laughs> Get to work. I was, good, I was good with it until like the third week. And then I'm like, oh my God, I have to crawl in these tanks again. <laughs> so cool. Dig it, man. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Great. And so then you became a winemaker at that winery for him? Um, I, I was an assistant winemaker for him. Um, and then 2015 kind of hit a point in my corporate career that I wasn't enjoying it anymore. Um, I was enjoying pieces of it, and, and I loved the people that I worked with, but the corporate culture I was realizing just wasn't, wasn't my cup of tea. Um, I wanted to do, I wanted to full-time just be a winemaker. Um, and, you know, at, at, at that winery, that wasn't a possibility. It was, it was small. Um, Kevin was the winemaker, like, no doubt about it. And he, he wasn't was, going and, anywhere. And he wasn't going anywhere. Um, and, and he really pushed me to travel internationally, do some internships, learn different styles. Oh, you know, sweet. don't don't just take what he taught me and then do that. Go learn from other people, see what they do differently. And I mean, it, and he was very honest. He's like, "Tell me what they do, so I can learn to do what I'm doing better too." Um, which he and I have had some really cool conversations about that over the last few years. Um, so I did. I, I quit my nice, high-paying corporate job and uh, put all my stuff into a storage locker in Oregon near my mom's house and flew to New Zealand. 
awesome. <laughs> wow. Now, didn't Michael Pierce do wine in New Zealand as well? I believe he did. I think he did. I think he did, yeah. I think That's he went down there for a harvest. So what did you, what'd you take from that experience down there? That, so the winery I worked for down there was huge. Um, we did 3,000 tons that year. So it, it was massive, massive winemaking scale. You know, 3,000 tons? 3,000 tons. Um, whereas, you know, a Barrage Cellars was maybe 100 tons. Um, you know, even, you know, Stronghold, our, our biggest year was 360-something tons. Wow. So, you know, 10 times that. Uh, it, it, was, it was really interesting. Um, I learned a lot. I, I learned that I don't want to make wine that big. On a mass um, scale. On a mass scale. You, yeah. you, you lose the touch. You lose the heart in it, I would say, a little bit. Um, at, le at least for me in, in, how I, in how I like to do things. Um, do you find that mass-produced wines like that lose, obviously, the nuance of, the, of what you can do when you're more hands-on with smaller amounts? Or not really? Yeah, I think they do, yeah, um, and, and that's not to knock large-scale winemaking at all because there's, I, I, could, I could never figure out how to consistently make a product like that when you're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of tons of grapes. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, you, you look at some of the, you know, going back to Chateau Saint-Michel, I mean, they put out wines at, you know, eight bucks a bottle or less that are I like great wines. wines. Yeah, they're I great wines. Wine. Um, my ignorance, the, the non-guru <laughs> that I am, I drink their wine, and I thought it was in California. <laughs> I, I, I drink their wine. It's good stuff. You know, you're at the grocery store picking up a frozen pizza. You get the $8 bottle of Chateau Saint-Michel Cab or something, Absolutely. and it's great. Yeah. Um, I, I could never understand. I, I could never reconcile in my brain how to make wine that way, how, how, to, how to deal with all these different tanks out there in a tank farm and make this consistent product through all of them. The vulnerability um, besides the fruit has to be incredible at yeah. that mass level. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's interesting. You know, losing one tank for them is millions of dollars. You know, losing one tank for me is, you know, a couple thousand. Right. Um, well, it's all relative, too, because you're, yeah. you're getting going. But yeah. At that scale, I would agree. I think it, what I'm hearing is, for you, the art, artistry of it goes away. Now you're back in corporate America. Right. In essence. Right. Yeah, which is you know very very true. It, you're you're back into corporate winemaking as opposed to, to small scale, you know, hands on winemaking. Yeah. You know that those winemakers don't get to stick their hands in every punch down every day. Exactly. I want to ask you. So, as I jumped in um, with you, mm -hmm. and quickly realized that that type of production was a whole different ball game than what I even envisioned, and. Yeah. Then I decided not to go forward with a you know formal label, and besides the fact of the amount of money to start your own damn thing, and, yeah. and even to work with the co-op, which I like the co-op opportunity, just didn't make sense for me to go forward to try to create my brand and my idea the way I wanted to do it. Right. I do have a way that I want to do it. I want to talk to you about that later. Yeah. But um, I've really enjoyed making the couple of vintages that I've had now, and you helped me do both of those it, yeah. it turned out really good actually i got <laughs> got to get you this one i just did with the bourbon barrel aging it turned out nice nice but so for you what would you say to a inspiring winemaker somebody who's fresh new had their first class maybe didn't have a class but fell into it the way that you did 
What's the best advice you could give somebody who thinks they want to jump into this world and take it to the <laughs> level that you're at? Run away. <laughs> <laughs> um, Winemaking is, is a tough business, and it, it's not, it, I mean, any, starting any business is tough. Um, the trick with starting a winery is, you know, it, it's not like starting a restaurant where, you know, you order food today and you're cooking it tomorrow and getting your money back, um, or, or, you know, a, a gadget store, whatever other, you know, entrepreneurial thought you may have. Um, and it's even different within the alcohol industry. Um, you know, if, if you get into distilling or brewing, you know, you find your sources for, for your grains or, or, or whatever other product you're using, you know, and you bring it in, you make your beer, your vodka, your whiskey or whatever. Um, and you, you have a quicker turnaround on your product and, and you can do it multiple times a year. If you start running low, you order more stuff. You can make more, you right? can make more, you know, it, not not in every case, you know, aged whiskeys, obviously they, they take a little bit of time. Um, but with winemaking, you know, we get grapes once a year, you know, and, and you spend all year prepping for those grapes to come in and then you get slammed with winemaking for a month or two. Um, and then that's it. That's, that's your product. And, and some of it, you know, your whites and your rosés could be available in, in six to 12 months. Um, but the majority of your reds, you know, they have to barrel age longer. So you're looking at a two to three year time frame to start to make profit off of that. So it's, it's a big investment up front that requires a lot of money. Carrying um, staying power as well, right? Carry, yeah, carrying staying power. You know, everything in here, every piece of equipment is either food grade plastic, which isn't cheap, um, or it's all stainless steel, which really isn't cheap. Um, and you need that all just for your cleanliness factor. So it's, you know, it's this huge investment of money that, you know, you, you really have to love it to, to do it. And, and that's why I always say, um, you know, that like, like what you did, you, you, you came in and you worked with us for a harvest and, and realized this wasn't quite what you wanted to jump into right then. Um, you know, I, I know winemakers who took a couple classes, had a passion for wine and jumped into winemaking right away just you know bought some equipment started making wine um at a commercial level and realized oh, wow this is not what i thought <laughs> um but but it's definitely it's something that when you're when you're passionate about it and when you love doing this you forget how long you're here doing it you know you forget how much hard work it is you know you go home at night and you're covered in grape sugars and wine and you know all your clothes are stained and you got to take three showers just to get the purple off of you. Um, but you love it and, and you don't even realize how tired you are just cause you know, I, I go home and then I'll sit down and I'll try to watch a movie and have a glass of wine or sit on my porch and smoke a cigar or something. And I, and my mind doesn't turn off. Like I, I can't even pay attention to, just to what I'm doing. So I'm thinking part. back about here and it, it's not thinking in a bad way. It's not that stressful, you know, can't sleep at night thinking it's thinking oh you know that that cab when i did that pump over tonight i really like the smell on it i'm going to go in and look at the barrels that i have maybe i'm going to change my barrel program for that because i want to accentuate that smell that's coming off i'll see if it's there tomorrow again and you know th things like that you just, just you get stuck into it going. yeah well that's a flow state right yeah. i mean if you talk about 
high achievers in any industry that that is the deal you get into flow state you do and you do what you're loving you do what you're doing and it's aggressive and it's hard but you love every minute of it so it's not really work right yeah it's funny i wake up in the morning right now and you know i kind of plan my day to be here at seven i kind of plan my work day to start at 7 a.m um right now i wake up in the morning and get up take a shower get dressed and i'm like I'm just going to work now. <laughs> Let me just I just want to go. I don't want to awesome. sit around here and have a cup of coffee. I'll make a pot of coffee at work. Awesome. So, you know, I'll get up at 5.30 and be in here by 6.15. And it's like, well, an hour earlier than I planned to be, but okay, let's get to work. Nice. Well, that's good. So the takeaway that I get out of that is get into it, test it, try it, see if you're really into it at that level before you would jump commercially, of course. Absolutely. And before you make a commitment to this is what I'm doing. Because yeah. Until you get established in this industry, it's a tough road, right? It is. It's it's a tough road because not only do you have to make the wine, but you also have to be a salesman and sell the wine. Um, you have to build relationships with customers, and and you know there's people that are really good at making wine, and there's people that are really good at you know building relationships. It's tough to be able to do both, right? Um, and and you have to have, especially if you're starting out small and, and keeping it, you know, really localized on on you know very few employees. Everybody's got to wear multiple hats, right. um, but it's definitely, I mean, it's, it's not impossible to do by any means. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it just takes a lot of hard work and sure. it's hard work for longer to get, to get something back out of it than, than other businesses. Yeah, I would say. I, I can see that for sure. What's the most interesting thing or most uh, challenging thing for you about Arizona fruit and making wine here in Arizona that may be different than what you have learned in other areas? It's the desert, and it's the desert, but it gets rain. Um, monsoon season has really threw me off when I first started here, and, and it still does, um, still throws me off. You look at you know, other great wine-growing regions around the world, um, that August-September time frame, they don't get rain. That, you know, that's their prime, you know, grape ripening and picking season. Verasian period. Yeah, right Verasian up to ripening. And here, right when we hit Verasian, we get monsoon. And you never know, you know, when you're going to get two inches of rain dumped on you in an hour when you're picking the next day. And that changes and, and the it, game, it, right? cha it changes the game. It changes what you're doing with those grapes, whether you can pick them. You know, the, the chemistry of the grape changes at that point. Your sugars can get diluted. Your pH can go up. Your pH can go up, so your acidity is all off. It, you know, it, it changes constantly. You just have to, you have to be on your toes more than anywhere else I've, I've worked making wine. I recognize, I didn't understand necessarily the depth of that, but I recognized that when I was helping you guys because we'd have plans for certain amounts of, of tonnage to come in, and then all of a sudden, oop, that's not here, but... Triple it because it's yeah, going to rain tomorrow. Yeah, and or, or we got this, right? Yep. Or, or we're picking tonight, like we're doing it right now. So. Yep. That's very interesting. Do most people pick at night in other areas, or is that just kind of unique to Arizona? Uh, in, no, I fre frequently uh, grapes are picked at night. Um, reason being, it, it, the grape comes in cooler. Um, it preserves acidity better. Uh, processing a warm grape versus a cool grape also changes the characters of the wines that come out of it. Nice. Um, you, you'll see a lot white wine grapes will be picked at night. Um, red grapes... Some areas are picked exclusively at night, but, but still they always start really early in the morning uh, so they can be done picking before the heat of the day kind of gets in there and starts warming up the grape clusters. Awesome. That's good information. 
There you go. That's some good guru stuff right there. <laughs> hey, uh, what do you think is the best varietal you've made, and which one was the one that you made that didn't necessarily turn out like you had hoped? Uh, it, well, my, my two favorite varietals to work with are Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah. Um, and and I, that's, that's been across the spectrum of, of where I've made wine. Um, everywhere I've gone, I've, I've loved making cabs. Um, Syrahs are always fun. They're, they're the most difficult, finicky grape to work with, um, it, it, at least as far as the stuff that I've worked with, um, just because you never, you have a plan for it, and it, your plan usually works, but it just changes so many times that you just think you screwed up all the way through the process until you get it in the bottle and be like, okay, yeah, that, that's what I was going for. <laughs> um, so I really enjoy working with those two varietals. Um, you know, the one varietal that I just can't seem to figure out, no matter what I've done with it, and I've only worked with it in Arizona, it is Grenache. Interesting. Um, it, it's just a weird, for me, and for kind of, I guess, the style that I, that I work in, it, it just never, <laughs> never comes out the way I want it to. It's always just like a toss-up, and we'll see what the hell happens with it. Wow. Um, which is kind of specifically why, we're, you know, I, I am working with Grenache here, um, at Cove Mesa, but exclusively for the Rosé program, which is probably the one place where I've, I found that it kind of does what I what want or expect to. it to do. Um, but producing it as a red wine, I just I, I threw up my hands and said, it's, I can't do it. Not for you. <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> what do you think is, uh, in your opinion, and from some of the other experts in the area, what do you think is really a dominant player Variety-wise or varietal-wise, in Arizona, are there grapes that are starting to show themselves as, "Hey, this is the shit in this area." I think it probably varies a little bit by region. Um, you know, Arizona is still really young in its winemaking life, so there's a lot of still trying to figure out things. Um, Different grapes than what used to be here before prohibition yeah, ripped them all up, right? Exactly. Um, Rhone varietals seem to do really well in Arizona. That um, except Grenache for everybody except me. Um, <laughs> Mavedra, Syrah, Petite Syrah. Um, they they all seem to have a pretty good hold. On, on, and I would say that's combined. Those grapes make up a, a pretty dominant amount of the planting in the state. Um, what about whites? Malvasia Bianca has really become a big white for Arizona. Um, we worked with that at the college. That was yeah. turned out really good. Yeah. It, it's a really nice wine. It's an aromatic white, um, which can be difficult to work with um, in, in the sense that if you're not really cautious in your winemaking um, and, and really control it, it can get out of hand and become too aromatic um, hmm. to, to the point where it gets too like perfumey. The bouquet is different, you mean? Yeah, the, it, well, it definitely the it goes, it goes full bouquet, wow. full floral bouquet, wow. you know. Standing at the altar, bouquet in your face as she walks out the door, like <laughs> that kind of bouquet, um, <laughs> which some people absolutely love. Good Mother's um, Day bouquet. <laughs> That's funny. But so, uh, so, how do you? What do you? What do you mean? You got to be watching it. What are you looking for to try to not let that happen? Uh, that 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 gets into the science of stuff, which I really stink at. Um, uh, for for me, how I do it, how I control that character is by keeping my my white ferments really cold, um, and there's a whole bunch of chemistry in there that I can't quote because I can't pronounce the words. Um, but different 
phenolic compounds develop at different temperatures um, and a lot of those florals develop at a higher temperature point. So if so, you allow variance in your temperatures, yeah, it could go squirrely. Yeah, it can go squirrely on you. So I keep mine really cold and I control them really tightly so that I can preserve the characters that I want in, in the wines. Awesome. What do you think in Arizona has been your best uh, wine that you've made so far? The one you're most proud of? Oh, that's a good one. Um... Specifically, I, I would say um, when I was at Stronghold, uh, one, one of the premium wines that they produce is called Lozen, and it's a, a right bank Bordeaux blend. So it's a, a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Malbec, um, and then you can also add Petit Bordeaux and, and um, Cabernet Franc in there as other Bordeaux varietals. And a, a right bank Bordeaux is always Merlot dominant or normally Merlot dominant. Um, the 2017 one we made there was, I, I really enjoyed the wine. Um, critics really enjoyed the wine. Um, so that was a, that was a nice little, is that the one you were getting some national attention on? Yeah. Yeah. We got, we got some pretty good attention on that one. Um, were you featured in a like pretty prominent publications, were you? Uh, yeah. So, um, I did a, uh, Wines of the Southwest tasting in New York City, um, and, and that seventeen Lozen was one of the wines that we took for that, and we got written up in uh, in Vine Pair, which is kind of an industry um, organization. A couple different sommeliers that have different blogs and things wrote about it. Um, we were written up in Wine Enthusiast nice. um, for it. We were written up in James Suckling for it. Wow. Um, is there any of that left? I need to get some of that. I need to try it. I have no idea. Probably. Yeah, I'm going to go check that out. Lozen? Lozen, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so that was a pretty fun wine to do. Sweet. So you're awarded with your wines, and you're relatively, you, would you consider yourself a relatively young winemaker? Not yeah, in, Not yeah. in age, but <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say, I don't know if I'd say I'm that young of a winemaker, anymore but i mean it, yeah absolutely there's there's winemakers out there that have been doing it for 50 60 years so i'm definitely young in that respect but well and in, and in this area obviously you're the new one of the new kids on the block so. yeah definitely a new kid on the block in, in, arizona. in arizona right yeah. yeah well that's well we're damn glad to have you for Thank sure you. i was so excited when i saw you i was playing that show i think it was at da when i hadn't seen you since we worked together yeah. or since you helped me with adjusting some of my wines and then I had heard that you were moved on and I was like oh shit I hope he stays we need to keep him here so so glad that that you're doing this it, this worked out well I had a couple other options I was looking at and then uh you know this this really started to kick off so I said you know I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stick around here and, and see what the heck's going on yeah no I'm super happy that you did and I love your wine and I loved working with you too so thank you that was really fun for me uh, I know you're busy, so let's let's wrap up this with one good question. This is one of those curveballs I want to throw at you. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm really intrigued to learn of your experiences, like uh, your commission opportunity in the military. I had no idea. Of course, we didn't have much time to talk when we were working <laughs> together, as well as the corporate side. So that's very interesting. And yeah. I really love that you've chose to choose your passion and just go get out of the, the norm and do what you love. 
I'm yeah. a huge I'm a huge proponent of doing that. I do that. I wear lots of hats, as you know. Yeah. And uh, it's always worked out good for me. So yeah. congratulations on that. With that in mind, what have you learned, or what is one takeaway that you've learned from winemaking that you apply in your life in other areas? Ooh. Patience. Oh, nice. Um, you know, it, co coming from, you know, a military background where it's always like, go, go, go. You know, they say do it, you do it now, and that's it. It happens. You know, and, and then getting into, you know, corporate crisis management, which is, you know, large-scale disaster recovery. Um, you know, I, I worked with, you know, Fortune 500 companies responding to hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and a whole other gamut of stuff. Um, it's always when you need it, you need it now, and it happens now. And if somebody doesn't do it now, then that's their ass. You know, getting into winemaking and, and you know, just, just you know, the wine we were talking about this morning, doing the pump overs on that Cabernet. Um, you know, it's it, it takes a lot of patience to wait for it to ferment, to to know that you need to wait to get what you want out of it and then you know that wine's going to go into a barrel and it's it's, it's not going to be you know quote ready for bottling for two years right. um so it's it's going to sit over there in a corner for two years you know occasionally getting touched to do something to it or, or taste it but it's going to it's two years before it's going to be in a bottle and then it could be six months or a year before it's ready to sell so you're you know you're, you're doing all this work you know, not to see anything from it for two to three years. Right. Um, and it takes a lot of patience to not, you know, to not say, well, get it in the bottle now and, and, you know, start making money or, or, you know, I want it in bottle because I want to take it home and drink it. You know, it, it, it's, you have to just give it time and, and let it do its thing. Um, it's not going to be ready tomorrow. It's, nice. you know, it's not going to, you're not going to get immediate gratification from anything you're doing here, even with a white wine, you know, it, it, you know, how I ferment the white wines, it takes a month or longer for them to finish. And then it still is going to sit and tank till next spring before we bottle it. So, oh. you know, just realizing that not everything has to happen right now. Um, you know, you get into larger scale winemaking and, and that changes a little bit. Um, or, or, you know, you get in the stronghold and it's like, no, we get those bins clean now because the grapes are going to be here in 15 minutes. <laughs> right. Um, you know, it's a little bit different here. You know, when, when I get back into this kind of artisan boutique, small scale winemaking, it's, it's patience. You know, it, I come in here during the day and, you know, I get all my stuff done in the morning and, and, you know, today's a good example. We're going to finish this up and I have some cleaning to do and I've got some organization to do, but it's not a lot of work. Um, so I'm going to spend most of my day just kind of hanging out here doing little things, waiting for the grapes to get here this afternoon to process some Sangiovese and get that done and, you know, get cleaned up. And then I'm going to hang out a little bit longer until I can do my punch downs for the night to stick to the schedule that I want. So I'm going to have this long day with a lot of sitting around in the middle, nice. um, which is nice in small scale winemaking, but can also, it, it takes patience to not knock it out and say, okay, I'm going to be done by three and out of here. Right. So if you're, <clears throat> so in, other areas of your life, this patience learning has helped you where you recognize that you're, you've kind of eased up on some of the 
aggressive expectations that maybe you might have had in a certain other way of being when you were in environments that dictated that? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I, you know, I've always been, you know, especially coming out of the military and coming out of um, crisis, crisis management. You know, especially the military. You know, but your career really influences your personality and, and the kind of person that you are. Um, so you know, you have this expectation that just because you left work doesn't mean that you don't expect everything right now and expect things to be done and done right every time. Um, and and I carried that with me into my corporate career, um, and a, and probably a little bit in, into my winemaking career at first. And and I've just kind of learned personally to, to take a little bit more time and and understand that you know it, it's called it's called the temper that i got from my dad that <laughs> when, when it flares it's not pretty um but that that patience has helped me to kind of temper that down quite a bit nice so you have better relationships with women now <laughs> sometimes <laughs> <laughs> when i can leave the winery for long enough to meet one <laughs> That's yeah right yeah not in crush season at all huh? mm-hmm that's great. My uh, mom calls me during crush, and I'm on the phone, and I say, what do you want, mom? I'm busy. Talk to you later. Bye. Yeah. Talk to you in October. Okay, bye. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that kind of communication doesn't go so well, I've been told. Yeah. I get told Ma that all the time, actually. <laughs> Mom's used to it at this point. She, she'll just come visit during harvest, which she walks in the door. I'm like, hi, mom. Get to work. Yeah, over there. <laughs> we're punching. We're cleaning. We need this. We need that. That's she loves great. it, though. It's fine. Well, let's take it out with this last question, then. As an expert, and I would consider you that most definitely, what do you do to stay on top of your game in this industry? What are you doing to always continue to advance your skills? How do you do that now when you're consumed with your own thing here? You, you know, it's just it's just like anything else. It, you know, there's always continuing education you can do. Um, there's there's a lot of wine journals that, that focus on wine chemistry and winemaking and, and different different trials that people have done to, to test different theories or, or or different ways to to accomplish a goal do you um, have any guys in this area that that you respect or that you've been able to network with and build some relationships i know it's kind of weird when i was in the college program you know everybody was trying to figure out their business model or what they were going to try to do and, and yeah. some guys got pretty damn stingy like oh i can't tell you what I, and it's like dude Collaboration is a good thing, right? I mean, yeah. come on. Is, do you find that guys are stingy with information in the area, or have you been able to network and build a relationship where you might have get tips from other guys and you'll share tips with them? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think I think everywhere you go in the wine industry, there's there's people that think that they have some kind of secret sauce, and, and you know, they don't share it, um, and, and they don't want to share it. Um, in Arizona. Um, there's a guy named Corey Turnbull, uh, who I met like the first day that I was here. Um, he's the winemaker for Page Spring Cellars, and then uh, he's the winemaker for his uh, for his own small label called Burning Tree. Um, and Corey and I can't get together for a beer without sitting and talking winemaking um, and, and talking different things we tried or different things we did or issues we've run into and, and you know bouncing thoughts off of each other so I, I i really respect him a lot for helping me to learn arizona because it is a, a completely different wine growing region to anything that i had had experience with before um 
and, and he's been a, a really good friend and a really good colleague to, to bounce ideas off of. Um, the people at Tumbleweed, I, I do have to say, are, are absolutely awesome, too. Joe's amazing. He's damn good, right? Joe, Joe's, Joe's really good. Yeah. Um, and, and then Chris, Chris and Jeff awesome too, are, right? are phenomenal. And, and, you know, I kind of bounce different things off of each of them. You know, Jeff, Jeff I always use for, for vineyard stuff. He's, he's the vineyard guru over there. So um, especially during harvest, he, he's always running down there to pick up grapes as well. So. I'll bounce thoughts off of him and, and get his advice on stuff he sees down there. Um, Joe, I've talked to about some winemaking stuff, and he's a super knowledgeable, incredible winemaker. Um, and then Chris, I just talked to about industry stuff. She, she's got her finger on the pulse of the industry really well. She so. did a hell of a job on that expose on uh, TV15. Did you see that? Or yeah, I did. 15? She did a great job on that, man. So just... So right on, knowledgeable to your point, right? Yeah, big time. I I was taken back by that. Yeah, I've had minimal exposure and talk with her on occasion, and uh, had some times to go into Joe's uh, barrel room and and chat with him a little bit, and uh, both of them just super cool. Yeah, 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 good people. And now before we get into the next segment of the podcast, where we're going to do some wine tasting here in the cellar with Matt, we'd like to introduce to you the new exclusive hop-on hop-off daily shuttle service in the Verde Valley wine country and the name of that service is the AZ Wine Crawler. It's your way to explore all of the cool spots in the Verde Valley and on the crawler wine trail, all the tasting rooms, the vineyards, the uh, wineries, and then all the great food locations and you get to do it for one low price. You get a day pass and you're good to go. It's a hop-on, hop-off shuttle service. The route runs approximately every 55 minutes at every stop, over 12 stops in the Verde Valley wine country. And you get to get on and get off as you please. The perfect way to explore the Verde Valley wine country. Safe, responsible, and most importantly, fun. The AZ Wine Crawler. Check it out today, azwinecrawler.com. And now back to the winery. Go taste some wine right out of the bin. Yeah, I'll taste a couple ferments and then a fun little thing that so one of the grapes that we brought in for Cove Mesa this year was Tempranillo. Um, it's my first time ever making Tempranillo, so oh nice. It's kind of a uh, well. Let's see what the hell happens. Okay. So this one's a fun little project for me. Um, this is Cabernet. Right. So it, it's something like, like I was saying, I, I love making this wine. Um, and here I got to really focus in and, and take the time to, to do it the way that I want to do it. Um, which is taking stuff that I picked up um, in Washington, making cab um, in the Napa Valley. Uh, and, and then applying all the stuff that I've learned about Arizona cab and figuring out what I knew that did not work or <laughs> may work. Um, so how long has this been sitting or fermenting so this has been fermenting as i walk around to the other side of the bin to look at my sticker uh so these grapes came in six days ago and they've been fermenting for five days okay um and they're it's just about done it's probably got three to four days till it's finished um which kind of fits in with 
what I want this to do. I want it to be about a 10 day ferment, um, a seven to 10 day ferment for the cab. Um, that that kind of gets the temperatures up and down to where I want them to be for different components of it um, and, and still maintain the fruit profile that I want. So th this has been a really fun one. These grapes are from the Rolling View Vineyard down in Wilcox. Nice. So it's still got a little bit of sugar on it. Let's, let's try it. Mm. But it's getting that tannic backbone yeah. that I want. Not harsh tannins though, that nice smooth velvety tannin yeah. character, so. Now in that, and I'm, as I taste that, at this stage, I get a lot of citrus. Yeah. That's Part of that's kind of an offshoot of, of fermentation okay. is the citrus character on it. And that'll settle down. Yeah, and that's also the acidity of it still. So this is going through the primary fermentation, which is alcoholic. It'll go through a secondary fermentation, malolactic. So you will do a malolactic on Absolutely, this? yeah. Okay. Um, and, and that'll kind of tone down a lot of those kind of green apple citrusy acids yeah, that are apple, on it. Perfect, yeah, citrus or, or that yeah. green apple is great. I suck at sensory evaluation. <laughs> I'm still learning. But, oh yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's got a huge component. It's got a ton of malic acid right now, which which is the acid that's in like a Granny Smith apple. I see. Um, so we'll introduce, you know, once it's pressed off and it's in barrel, we'll introduce a bacteria that converts the malic acid to lactic acid, so which is the acids in milk. milk. Yeah. And uh, so it really one, cools it down. Was, when I was trying to do the mulberry wine, you had me yeah. try to fix it with that. There was no fixing that, by the way. <laughs> that shit just went into the dirt. <laughs> so that turned out horrible. <laughs> yeah, fr fr fruit wines, you know, you know, there's grape wines and there's fruit wines. And fruit wines, I don't like to mess with because you get into pectin levels and all kinds of weird things that I'm just like, yeah, no, I'll stick to grapes. Yeah, and plus you're putting in way too much sugar in order for them to even turn out. I don't, I don't like that either. Yeah, it's, that's a lot of playing around. So this is the other grape that I said I like working with. This is a Syrah. Oh, this one's that one that's almost black. So dark, yeah. Yeah. So this is pretty much done with fermentation. And this one um, came in on the 16th. So what are we, 10 days? We're 12 days 12 in. days at this yeah. point? Nice. So th this is almost essentially done. done. Um, I'll probably press this off tomorrow and put it in the barrel. Now, do you check what your bricks are when they came in, and then as you're getting ready to press it off, right? You, you yeah. Do that so, test. I, so, what does the process look like for that? So, when the when the grapes first come in, um, they go through the distammer, they get put into a fermenter, and then I'll I'll test bricks, pH, temperature, titratable acidity, um, and that first test I do it because it's that grape juice is really thick. Um, I, I use a refractometer to measure it. Um, but then daily, as I, after it starts fermenting, every day I'll measure bricks levels by specific gravity with, with a hydrometer. That's what I use. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, that's right. that's the industry standard. Um, unless you got a bunch of money and then you buy one of the fancy little machines. Right. Um, which I want one day. <laughs> <laughs> so this is great. What are you getting out of this? So this is, this is the kind of Syrah that I like. It's. It's got fruits. It's got some really good kind of blackberries, black fruit characters, kind yeah. of a little plummy. Not not like pruney, but like, you know, Almost nice fresh cherry. plum, little black cherry. Yeah, it's nice. But then it's got a lot of that kind of secondary characters. It's got some, you know, some tobacco and cedar. and. I do taste that woody. Yeah, yeah a little yeah. bit of woody. Wow. 
not not woody like over oaked woody, but just it's got that yeah, like little, cedar chip kind of character. Hit, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. The colors are great. It's so dark. Yeah, yeah, that's that's not easy to do in Arizona with our growing season. So, you know, every now and then you get lucky, and this this vineyard's a really good one. It's uh, the Dos Padres Dos Padres Vineyard um, down in the Page Springs Valley. It's one of the uh, Page Springs Cellars vineyards. Oh, nice, cool, awesome. Yeah, that's turning out real good. So I'll go into a little bit of oak, and then sit for a few years. <laughs> so we just barreled this down. Day before yesterday, this is our Tempranillo. And I'll, I'll come back out to you so you don't Oh, we're going to take some right barrel. out of the barrel now, gang. Here's what we got going. He's got his wine thief in the barrel. Woo! So, so fair warning, this might be a little funky at first just because it, it just got inoculated from Mallow. Okay. Oh, so, uh, interesting. Yeah. Give it, give it a little spin to, to blow off any of those funky noses that might be coming off of that. <laughs> Actually, it's not bad. So you just put the, for people that don't understand mallow, you just put the bacteria in. Is It is a bacteria strain, right? It is a bacteria in. strain. Uh, uh, again, science, I'm horrible. Uh, Onococcus oni? Yeah, I think that is it. It's not the correct pronunciation, but hey, we're going to go with it. Boy, that's So nice. this one's fun. Oh, man. Um, that's, and this is a Syrah? It, this is a Tempranillo. Tempranillo? Oh, this is the one you're first run at. Yeah, huh? fir first try. Um, and I think it went pretty well. Um, I'm really happy with the fruit character it has. I'm happy with how the tannin levels developed. Um, I've got it in a, a little bit of new oak, um, which is something else I'm really working with here. Um, you know, we're actually leaning against all the brand new barrels that I got in this year Sweet. for all of you that can't see us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So fresh, brand new. And then you have some that are like, multiple years so old three and three four five year old barrels okay um that that we purchased used from a from a buddy of mine that has a big winery in napa um i trust his barrels coming in Sweet. i know they're clean um i know he he's a very clean winemaker so i bringing his barrels in we know we're not bringing weird bugs in with them nice um but, but that's kind of something else that i'm trying to push a little bit more on the wines that we're producing here is a little bit more um new oak much earlier in in the process which is more expensive you know brand new barrels are not cheap right man. um I, I think the cheapest brand new barrel i got this year was a thousand dollars god dang really yeah Whew. that's uh, crazy and, and you know it's it's a depletable resource you know they're yeah. that you can keep a barrel for yeah how quickly right <laughs> well you know a twelve hundred dollar barrel the thousand or a twelve hundred dollar barrel this year you could sell next year for maybe 250. Good grief, um, it's worth it a new car. <laughs> and then, you know, you get down three, four years down the road, and they're worth 50, right. 75 bucks. Yeah, 75 bucks, 80 yeah. bucks. I bought that four four whiskey bourbon barrel last year yep. to put the cab in that you helped me have, or helped me do, and man, that just turned out so nice. I actually need to steam that barrel out. Can I bring it over and use your steamer? Yeah, we can clean it out for you. That'd be cool. Yeah, bring yeah. it over. We'll definitely do that. Oh man, this is awesome! I love it. A fresh yeah. barrel taste. This Tempranillo is going to be nice. Yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty stoked with it. So it's what like, are you getting on this profile? It's it's got right now. It's got a little bit more red fruit character. Um, kind of more, not Bing cherry, but kind of a rainier cherry. A little bit, mm. a little bit more. Um, not 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 quite as sweet. I guess I would say. Um, 
kind of some red raspberry characters. Um, it's got this like little bit of a bittersweet cocoa character yeah, to yeah, it, yeah, um, like which a, I kind of like. There's a, a cacao or whatever. That yeah, is. like a, yeah, yeah, cacao. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's got a really smooth palette, and I really like the tannins on it. So I'm anxious to see how this does in barrel. And yeah, to your point, now you got to wait what? Yeah, a year. Uh, but th this will be 18 to 24 months um, in barrel. In barrel, wow. And, and in you know, new barrel too. Oh, yeah. Only some of it's in new barrel. Yeah, right? f five, five barrels, one new. That new one will come off a lot different, won't it? It will. Yeah. So th there'll be a lot of character in that barrel that isn't in the other four. Are you going to then blend them? Yeah. They'd, so it'd be blended together. Okay. Then you have to obviously pay attention to that too, because the if it does what my whiskey barrel did to my cab, my God, in three months, I was like, I got to take this out. And it's only a 25-gallon barrel, so okay. I had Again, 70 gallons. It goes so, back to patience. Yeah, putting yeah. it in. So you leave that out, in there. Putting you more leave in, it in. No, you just leave it in there. Oh, That's well, the patience well, thing. Well, it is. took up so much of the bourbon so fast. But it, I was it, like, it changes over time. So it get like, yeah, that, that wine right there, that'll be undrinkable in that new barrel in three months. Right. It'll just be oak. Yeah, such a huge oak character. But that oak profile changes over time so oh, you know the, the whole idea so of the you 18 won't to take it out of the new barrel and put it into another to, no to it'll, reduce. it'll stay in that barrel until i'm ready to bottle everything ah, because gotcha. that 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 quick punch that you get kind of mellows over time oh sweet um so next year in my bourbon barrel i should leave it yeah just leave potentially it. and just let it stay yeah well the wine turned out damn good but yeah. i utilized it to do all of my gallons as opposed to just the 25 so i kept it in for about three months yeah and then i taste it and i'm like oh shit some people aren't gonna like bourbon you know so <laughs> i yanked it out of there and then i transferred and put more in and then i yanked it yeah. out of there three months and then i transferred and did it that way smaller projects like that um you know being thrifty with your with your oak that that's definitely a good idea for for what what i'm trying to do here knowing that you know all of this wine is going to stay in this barrel for two years potentially you know i, I want to keep that wine in that, that barrel profile it, that be profile will others. change completely and then when i blend them all across you know the, these two bottom barrels are are essentially neutral oak so there's going to be a lot of fruit profile in these these two middle barrels are uh once used oak so not as aggressive um maybe a, a little aggressive still but that's going to give me a little bit more complexity characters and then that new barrel up at the top is going to have a lot of the structure and character of the wine and it's blending all those pieces together that'll give me the full round wine that i'm that hoping <laughs> happens Sweet. there's some more guru stuff for you right there <laughs> hey what what would you say is your winemaker style then i i've always said that i'm kind of more of a classic winemaker style um i don't I don't go for really aggressive wines. Um, you know, I I don't I don't try to use a lot of oak. I don't try to use I, I don't make big jammy character wines. Um, say I'm much more old world, and that's how I was taught. Um, that's the winemakers that I, I I speak to frequently that are that are mentors in what I'm doing. That's their style of winemaking. Um, so you know, I I go for more character and complexity rather than in your face which is a typical american way yeah <laughs> right. yeah typical new world way i mean you um, you know 
Australia. Well, yeah, it, you yeah, know, probably it, more correct. Yes. Yeah, South America, Napa. You know, a lot of those are much more in-your-face, big, bold wines, which we really can't do in Arizona with our growing seasons, anyways. Um, we just don't have that type of season to where we can make that kind of wine. Um, it's funny. I watch your Facebook posts. And you've always got these incredible wines that you're tasting, and most of them seem to come from overseas, like they're international wines, right? Yeah, absolutely. The majority of them are. So the, the majority of them are. I, I really enjoy, and I, I really like old world wines. Um, Bordeaux's, yeah, yeah. I grill a lot of steaks at home, so a good cab always goes well. Um, Italian wines, I'm head over heels in love with. Um, I spent a summer in Italy, basically on my own bill, um, bouncing around from to Airbnbs in Tuscany and the Piedmont region and made a bunch of connections with winemakers saying, Hey, let me come work with you for a day or two. You know, I'll do whatever you want. Make, make me clean stuff. Make me scrub the floors. I don't care. Just let me talk to you. Let me understand how you make wine and what, what you, you do. do. So cool. Wow. Um, which yeah, there were some amazing guys who were like, yeah, sure. Come on. And, you know, some of them did make me work a lot more than the information <laughs> I got out of them. Um, and some of them, I, I literally just walked around with them for two days as they did their job, just teaching me what they were Shadowed doing. Them yeah. To be able to see what they're, how they're tasting, how they're testing, what they're looking for. Sweet. Yeah. So good. Well, all right, man. I appreciate it. I know you got to get back to it. Uh, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you as a person and also as a guy that let me get involved and help and learn. And so that's been awesome for me. I definitely need your input on this next uh, next deal I got going too. I have your help in that. So we'll see if that can happen. Yeah, definitely. Uh, hey, anytime you want to come clean some bins, I already got one dirty for you. Yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> yeah, no. And I need to get my hands in the grapes again. I, I miss it. So, all right, brother. All yeah, right. Thanks. Yep. Thank you. All right. And with that, we brought you Mr. Matt Reka from the Cove Mesa Winery. What a great time spending time with Matt in his new winery, getting my hands in the grapes, trying some of his new fermentations and also some of the wines that he's already completed. And I know you will not be disappointed. Check out Matt's work at Arizona Stronghold for the last three vintages and then look for Cove Mesa Winery to be on the shelves starting next year. Thank you again, Matt Reka and Cove Mesa for spending time with us. And now, stay tuned for the next episode of AZ Wine Guru, the place where you go to hear about all the people that are making things happen in the Arizona wine industry.